Take your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. I have to admit to you, over the course of years, my approach to Mother's Day has changed. And it got helped along quite a bit a few years ago when after a Mother's Day where I had, I, I was that guy, and I had preached Proverbs 31, I had a dear woman who is still a part of our church say to me, if I hear one more time Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day and realize how I cannot match up, And so this morning, you will see in our text that mothers are addressed, but it's not my intent to preach about Mother's Day. But I came across this this week, and it was so good to me that I wanted to share it with you. I think Mother's Day can be really painful for some, for a variety of reasons. And for us to be the church and gather together and act like, oh, it's such a, such a wonderful day and not acknowledge how it, how it is really painful for some. This was written, I don't know if you'd call this a poem, but this is more of a, a kind of a short little synopsis, if you will, by a woman who left a Mother's Day service years ago. And she wrote this down and she's like, this is what the church should be on Mother's Day. And it's called The Wide Spectrum of Mothering. I want to share it with you this morning. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointments, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say stupid, foolish things. We don't mean to make it harder than it is. To those who are foster moms or mentor moms and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge that experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who have aborted children, we remember them and you on this day. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you long for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst, and we think and remember you. 
I think that sums it up, doesn't it? I think that sums it up. And so happy Mother's Day to you. But I want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 11 this morning. And our text this morning is verses 14 through 28. And if you have a Bible that kind of breaks things down with headings, you're looking at that and you're like, there's three distinct headings that he's preaching on here. There's three distinct paragraphs in my Bible here. And, and honestly, about Wednesday afternoon sitting in my office, I'm like, I should have just planned a Mother's Day message, man. Should have just done a Mother's Day message, you know, made all the women unhappy with me and, you know, tell them that they're not Proverbs 31 women, say amen and get out of here, right? But as I really began to, to further dig into this, there's a common thread here. There's a common thread in these three accounts that Luke puts together. And, and we have to remember this. Our Bibles are, are written by men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit, as, as Aaron pointed out to us in the ABF time this morning. And, 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 and as the Holy Spirit moved these men along, there was a purpose for why he arranged things in a certain way. And, and so these are not three disjointed accounts that don't that somehow mesh together. There, there is a common thread in here, and I think we find the common thread in verse 23, where Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That is an audacious statement. Think about this. Jesus says this, if you are not with me, you're against me, okay? Now, there have been people throughout history who have tried to say that, okay? And they, there have been tyrants who have ruled, ruled their people and tried to say that if you're not with me, you're against me. But really, in many cases, it's good to go against a tyrant, isn't it? It's good to reject a tyrant. It's good, it's good to reject what a tyrant stands for. But here we have Jesus Christ, the God-man, saying this thing to us. If you're not with me, you're against me. And this ought to make a shake to our very core. I remind us this morning that this book overall is written to a Gentile. It's written to a guy named Theophilus, and it's written to a Gentile audience. And, and, and what, what Luke is doing here is he's trying to give them certainty about the things that they've been taught about Jesus, but he's also giving an explanation about this big nebulous idea thing that's called the kingdom of God and what that all is and, and how that impacts not just the Jew but the Gentile and, and, and its arrival and its purpose and its place. And in fact, in verse 20 of this text, we're referred to the kingdom of God. Jesus himself directs our attention to the kingdom of God. And so this morning, while I read this, bear with me. These things do all tie together. And I think it'll be pretty evident here by the time we get to the end of the message. But I want to read verses 14 through 28 this morning. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and people marveled. And some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household stands, or, excuse me, falls. 
And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Father, this morning, without the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, we're not going to get this right. And so we're thankful that the Spirit is here with us, that, that as believers, those in this room who are trusting in Christ by faith for, for His finished work and His righteousness, that we have the Spirit given to us. And so this morning, Lord, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give to us, and what we are not, make us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. As we come to this text of scripture, I want to remind us that the opposition to Jesus is increasing. It is, it, is becoming, it is becoming so thick in the air that you can just cut the tension with a knife. The opposition to Christ is, is, is ramping up. And there is a strong and growing desire to silence him by any means necessary. Yes, there, there's beginning the plots of, of death and, and how we can just wipe this guy out. The, the religious leaders, it's fair to say, by this point in Jesus' ministry are after his life. And in fact, what they do in verses 14 through 23, in the charge that they make against Jesus here, is actually something that, if could be proven true, could sentence Jesus to death. And so the first thing I want us to see is, is that Jesus here, because, because he's preaching truth, because, because he's doing things like we saw in the, in the passage before where he's, he's teaching his disciples how to pray and, and he's explaining that we have a good and heavenly father who gives to us good things. Because he's teaching this way, because he's preaching this way, because he's healing people, because people's lives are being changed, he is now being greatly opposed he is now being greatly opposed. And so in the course of his ministry, he casts out a demon. And I want you to consider with me in verse 14 what it must have been like to be in that crowd and know, look over, and, and I don't know, let's, let's call him Bob this morning, okay? We know about Bob, right? Bob can't talk. And Bob at times acts really funny, and we understand because he's under the influence of a demon that he's not been able to talk. And so when he shows up at the crowd, and Jesus is preaching, and Jesus is doing his healing and things, we're all thinking to ourselves, I wonder what Bob's going to do today. Right? I wonder how he's going to act. I wonder how he's going to respond. And Jesus casts the demon out from this man, and, and, and then as soon as the demon leaves him, 
Bob opens his mouth. Now, we don't know how many years that Bob has been mute. But I want to tell you this. If you, if you lived in that town and you had never heard Bob speak, could you imagine how freaky it would be the first time you heard Bob speak? And you would listen real carefully to what he said. And I imagine the things that came out of his mouth were, were, were things that were like praising God and praising Jesus. Would you not agree with me? And as this man lifts up praise to Jesus, and, and, and he, he gives validity to what's just happened here, because they've known that this man cannot speak, and all of a sudden, now he can speak again as soon as Jesus casts out the demon. All of a sudden, that gives Christ even more credibility, doesn't it? Gives him even more credibility as he's, as he's preaching to these people. But verse 15, immediately, Jesus is slandered. Jesus is slandered. And, and here's what they say. He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. He, he, he's being accused here of, of being in league, in, in, in lockstep with Satan himself. Because when, when, you, when you raise the charge of Beelzebub, the name of Beelzebub, it's an alternative name for Satan himself. The Jews use that term Beelzebub. Okay? It means Lord of the flies, literally the God of dead animals and manure. Okay? That, that's literally what this name means. He's joined forces with the dark side now, and now he's casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. As I mentioned before, if they can prove this to be true... That's a stoning offense. I mean, you don't even really have to bring him into, into a trial before the Jewish leaders. If you can prove that he's casting out demons in the power of Satan, everybody there who's a part of the ruling party, they get to pick up stones and they just get to end his life right there. And so, so make no mistake, what's about to happen here is really important because Jesus' credibility not only is at stake, but his life is at stake here in, in view of the people here. And so, as soon as that charge is made, as soon as that charge is made, you, you've got, got a large group of people in that larger group of people who are like, yeah, here we go. We got him. We got him. We're going we're to end him right here. This is the end of Jesus today. We're going to stone this guy. We're done. But then there's another group of people in verse 16 who speak up. They're trying to test him further. And, and I got to believe these are probably, because people are no different than what the kind of people we have in the world today. There are more moderate people in the world who are not, who are not as extremist, right? And they like to play the middle, right? And so these people here are probably playing the middle. They're like, it might be a little radical to kill them right here on the spot. Might be just a little radical to do that. How about we put him to the test and, and, and let's see if he can do something even bigger and better. You see that there in verse 16? where he says, to test him, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They kept seeking him from him. Like, okay, you, you, if you really are God, like you say you are, if you really have come from heaven to us, why don't you bring us a sign from heaven? Why don't you do something just amazing that'll just, just totally blow our minds? Now, Jesus isn't going to address that right away. Next week, you'll see in the text next week, beginning in verse 29, that Jesus will deal with that charge and, and, that, and that request for a sign. But he does deal with this attack that could end his life. He does deal with this attack. And, and before we go any further, I want you to see the grace of Christ in this. 
when you and I are defend, or when we are when we're attacked and, and our lives are under threat, how do we respond? If someone wants to meet you with deadly force and you have the opportunity to respond in the same way, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond with deadly force? How many would do that? How many would want somebody to be able to do it for them? Right? Right? Okay? If my life's under threat, I want somebody who's big and bad right behind me. I want Dave Rumpke right behind me. That's who I want. Okay? Would you be there, Dave? Yes, thank you. Okay. Because here's the thing, I'm going to want to preserve myself, right? I'm going to want to preserve myself. Jesus here doesn't respond like you and I would respond. Does he have the ability to defend himself? Mind you, this is the same Jesus when they approached him in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. He speaks, whom do you seek? And what happens to all the men who come? They fall over, right? Okay, he manifests his power. He could have manifested his power here by just speaking. The crowd all falls down and he walks away, right? But I want you to see the grace of Christ in this. I want you to see the grace of Christ in this. It's really hard to deal with religious fools. Let me say it again. It's really hard to deal with religious fools. And here Jesus here doesn't walk away and leave them in their unbelief. In an act of grace, he addresses their objection. It's an, act of, it's an act of grace here that Jesus, Jesus deals with their ridiculous charge. And he does it with kind of like two parable-like answers. And, and, and the reason I think he does this is, is to point out to those who are kind of not, maybe not so hard after his life, to, to point out to them just the ridiculousness of, of what's being said here. In verses 17 through 18, he gives his first answer. And, and the answer, basically, the logic behind this answer is this. Okay? Here, you think I'm in league with Satan? If you think Satan or I, and I are on the same team, then, then, then what you're saying is, is that we're like a divided kingdom. And because I'm here to oppose Satan, and you're saying now that I'm working with Satan, no divided house will stand. Isn't that what Abraham Lincoln said during the Civil War? And what he's pointing out here is, look at verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? In other words, if Satan is casting out demons, that's just stupid. Why would Satan be casting out demons? And if you're saying, I'm doing the work of Satan, it's just stupid to say that Satan would want to cast out demons that are doing his work. Please tell me this morning on a rainy Sunday morning you understand that logic. You understand that? It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. And as if that answer isn't, you know, powerful enough, he gives them a twofer. In verse 19, he gives them another little test. He says, if I am casting out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So let's understand something. Jesus wasn't the only one who was casting out demons during this time. The religious leaders of, 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 the, of the Jews were able to cast out demons too. It, it's recorded in their history how they had part men who were in their Sanhedrin, who were, part of, who were a part of the synagogue, who would cast out demons. And so Jesus is saying this, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, what about your guys? Whose power are they doing? Whose power are they using? 
And, and, and then he goes on to say, therefore, they will be your judges. And in verse 20, he says this, if it is the finger of God, and I like this, he doesn't even use the phrase hand of God. He doesn't use the phrase power of God. But if it is the finger of God, just kind of like, doink. If it's the finger of God that I'm, that I'm using to cast out demons, then he makes this statement. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what Jesus has done in a way that only Jesus can do in a masterful way, he has taken the attack and he has totally spun it back on them. Right? He's totally spun the attack back on them. Because they're saying, here you are, you're doing the work of the devil. And he's like, wait a minute. Okay, let's think logically about this. And now, if it really is just the finger of God, if it's the power of God through what I'm saying here, then you have to acknowledge this, then the kingdom of God is upon you. And in that statement, what he's saying is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? If the kingdom of God is really here, as I've been telling you it is, because that, remember, throughout this book, as Jesus has been preaching, he's been drawing attention to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And now he's saying it again. If, you're, if I'm really casting out demons with the finger of God, the kingdom or the, the power of God, the, the kingdom of God is now upon you. What are you going to do with it, people? And then he makes a statement that I'm not sure they completely understand, but I'm sure Satan understood in verses 21 and 22. Catch this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. And here he's talking about Satan. Satan has his own. Satan had this man who was controlled by one of his demons who's, who's mute, right? And he's got him guarded. He's got him locked up, right? But when, verse 22, one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And literally what Jesus is saying, he's putting Satan on full notice here. I'm here and I'm plundering your kingdom, Satan, because I'm stronger than you. And then he makes a statement, which I said to you kind of is the common thread through all these three accounts. What are you going to do with this? You're either for me or you're against me. And he's saying this to the people in the crowd. He's saying this to the religious leaders. He's saying, okay, you want to come seek my life? Understand this. You're either with me or against me. Just as in any time in life there are decisions to be made, this is a decision point for these people. This is a crisis point. This is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a decision to be made. There's a decision for every one of us to be made. Either I'm with him or I'm against him. There's no middle ground here. Do you notice here when Jesus says that in verse 23, there's no Switzerland? There, there's no middle ground. You are either coming at me in direct opposition or you are marching with me. There's no middle ground to be had. And I would say to every person in this room this morning that's listening online, that's in the other room, you are either with Jesus or you are against him. You cannot find a middle ground. So let's understand this. If you're not with Jesus, and, and let's understand, to be with Jesus is not a walk in the park, is it? Where is Jesus headed, church, at this moment? What, what town is he headed to, ultimately? 
Go ahead, say it's the Sunday school answer. You'll get it right if you say it nine out of ten times. When we talk about Bible things, what's the major Bible city? Yes, Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem, right? What's going to happen in Jerusalem when he gets there? He's going to die. He's going to die. We remember this by celebrating communion. And let's be honest, we're sitting in comfy blue chairs, drinking out of little plastic cups that have been prepackaged, and it seems so comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for Christ, and it wasn't comfortable for his followers either. His followers all deserted him. Why? Because it was going to be hard to follow him, right? And so what Jesus is asking for, he's not just drumming up support like, like it's the Buckeyes and we're having a pep rally here. Either you're with us or you're against us. Rah, rah, go team. No. Either you're with me and you're going to march to death with me or you're against me. It's the same message today. Jesus said, if you'll follow me, you'll pick up a cross and you'll follow me, right? And so let's not assume this morning that, oh yeah, let's just be on Jesus' team here. It's the great team to be on because we're going to win in the end. Yay, go team. No, to, to be on Jesus' team means you're going to follow him to the point of death. You're going to follow him to death. And so this kind of gets borne out for us now in this, because in that crowd, like in probably this room this morning and in the world around us, there are people who try to play the middle road. Even though I told you there's not middle ground, right? They still try to play it though. And here's how people try to play the middle ground. And I may be describing somebody here this morning, and if so, it's not because I can look in and like I'm clairvoyant, I can understand your heart. No, I, I, I played this way too one time in my life. And it's the road of being moral, the road of trying to be good, the road of being self-reformed. Like, I know that only good people get into heaven, or I believe that's what the Bible teaches, so because I want to go to heaven one day, I'm going to become a very moral, good person. In that crowd, there were people like that, too. There's always people like that. You run into them in the grocery store. Your kids go to school. The, the parents that your kids go to school with, they're like that, okay? There's a group of people in the world who, who want to believe that there is a God. They do believe that there's a God. They don't want to take the way of salvation that Jesus offers. They want to get there by just being good. Here's what Jesus says the danger of that is. You see, if you see yourself as morally good, you don't see yourself in need of, of a miracle of life-giving proportions like Jesus does, right? I'm good. I don't need Christ to die for me. And so Jesus offers up this story. In the beginning in verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. The belief was in that time was that when, when, when a spirit was cast out, when a demon was cast out of somebody, it went out to the desert, the waterless places, Okay? Okay, that's, that's where demons went. That's what they taught. Seeking rest, and it finds none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. I'm going to go back to where I came from. Now, notice how he finds this house. When he comes back, he finds the house put in order. That's the description of a moral person. That's a description of a moral person. A moral person 
tries to put their own house in order. Maybe you've tried to do that in your own life. You ever tried to do that? You know what? You know, I, I was around some good people. I was around some Christian people, and I can see how they have it all together, and I'm just going to try and put my life together. How long does that last when you try to do it yourself? Doesn't last very long, does it? Doesn't last very long. And so let's understand something here. Churches today are full of people who are morally good, people who are reformed, who are religious, who are outwardly good, who, like this man, have changed their ways. But it's a picture of self-effort and reform. And so here's what happens. is the way Jesus puts it in verse 26. Then the Spirit goes. When he finds, when he finds that this guy's put his house in order, it, he goes, he does this. He's like, okay, I'm going to go find seven others and I'm going to come back. Okay, the significance of seven is this. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of completion. And, and, and really what he's saying is, okay, you think you've got your house in moral order, then evil really attacks. Then evil really attacks, and it overwhelms you. And so let's understand something. The answer is not in being good. You and I can't be good enough to make God love us. You may think you can, but being good doesn't protect a person at all, does it? And at this point, I just imagine if we're there listening to the crowd, the crowd just hushes. What do you say to that? How do you respond to that? Then this woman in verse 27, leave it to a woman, right? There's this very pregnant pause. Right? And she pipes up. And she says this in verse 27. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. That was a common way to, to address somebody and, and, and to say, you, you are so wonderful because you have a wonderful mother. And, and that's, that's what's happening here. And, and, and people are like, man, I'm so glad somebody spoke up. Because that was really, that was awful. That silence was terrible. And in verse 28, Jesus says this. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's like, yeah, my mother's cool and everything. But blessed are those who listen to the word of God and obey it. And what we have here is a picture of what he just said in verse 23. Yeah, Mary's an amazing woman, but, but Jesus doesn't even acknowledge anything about his mom. He, he turns his attention to those who, who listen to his word and obey it. And, and the only person who can listen to God's word and obey it is a person who's been transformed. A moral person cannot listen to God's word and obey it. Because they're still trusting in their self-righteousness. Only a transformed person, a person whose life's been changed by the, by the gospel that we just sang about. A, a message that, that people can now be new creations in Christ. Because, because here's the thing. It's true in Jesus' day and it's true in our day. You sitting here this morning listening to me, you are either with him or you are absolutely against him. And if you are thinking to yourself, I'm just going to try harder and do a little better, you're against him. In a moment, we're going to witness the baptism of a young man. 
who, when you hear his testimony, you'll understand he was against him, and he knew he was against him. And it's only when the gospel shines into our heart that we realize just how far against him we really are. When, when we understand that, that little chorus that we sang, that, that holy God had to come and be a man and take my place because I deserve to hang on the tree. Did you deserve to hang on the tree? I deserve to hang on the tree. And someone had to come and take my place. And this young man that's going to get baptized by God's grace is no longer against Jesus. That's a glorious thing, isn't it? It's a glorious thing. But what about you? Are you for him? Have you had your heart transformed by the power of the gospel? Or are you trying to live a reformed life? And in doing so, you, you have yourself self-duped into thinking that you're really with Jesus. But in the end, you're going to find out you're against him. You're going to find out you're against him. And so, this morning, when you think about it, we're going to see two object lessons, and we've already participated in one, that, that bear this whole text of Scripture out. We participated in communion together. What is communion? It's, it's reflecting and remembering what Christ has done for us, right? It's a reminder to us when we take communion, not just that Jesus paid it all for us, but, but that it was a horrible death. It was a death that you and I deserved, and he calls us to bear our own cross and follow him. In a moment, we're going to see a baptism. We're going to see somebody who, who's saying, I identify with what Christ has done. This is my testimony. And so, as we segue into that, I want to pray, and then I want to share with you a little bit about this man, this young man. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, what a chilling thing to realize that we're either for you or against you. And for those in this room who, who, have, who have thought that just because they're doing good things and that they come to church and maybe they put money in the offering box and, and, and maybe they, it was a big sacrifice to get here this morning that they've earned your favor and they're trusting in that, I pray that they would know, that they would absolutely know that self-effort, good works is nothing but being against you. And I pray that, that the gospel would gloriously transform their lives so that they would be with you this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.